This is the Urban Astronomer Podcast. Hi there, this is Alan Fasholt speaking and you are listening to the 38th episode of the Urban Astronomer Podcast. As usual, the most important thing I have to say is to give a warm and appreciative thank you to Peter, Margot, Catherine and the rest uh, of the Patreon supporters who have each pledged a small monthly donation to help cover the costs of running the show. I do all my own production. I build and operate my own servers. Um, so it's not hugely expensive, but it still isn't free. So it is quite nice to have your support to make this podcast into something that can sustain itself. Now, today we'll be hearing the third of the Scopex 2018 public lectures, this one titled Living in the Shadow of a Variable Star, the Sun, uh, presented by Dr. Peter Kortzer. Unfortunately, Dr. Kortzer was plagued with technical difficulties, uh, including a laptop that crashed and then wouldn't restart, projectors that didn't want to connect to the replacement laptop we organized, and videos that refused to play. Uh, I've edited out the excruciatingly awkward silences uh, mid-lecture with the sounds of an audience growing increasingly restless while the seconds turn into minutes, and, well, I'm yeah, I'm in awe of his composure throughout the whole ordeal. Uh, but before then, I promised to finish off our physics segment following the life cycle of a star from gas cloud to supernova, so, so here it is. A few weeks ago, when we last looked at the life cycle of a star from dust cloud to black hole, we saw what happens when main-sequence stars run out of hydrogen. If they're small enough, if they're red dwarfs, they just fade away, although they're so efficient that this takes trillions of years to happen. Anything bigger, though, uh, will not only accumulate all of the helium ash into the core, which eventually separates out into a new non-burning core surrounded by a shell of fusing hydrogen, it also eventually gets hot and dense enough that the helium itself begins fusing into heavier elements, leading to a whole chain reaction of events that result in the star ballooning outwards. Our own sun will consume the inner planets, possibly up to and including the Earth, or even Mars, depending on which models you find most convincing. But that begs the question, what happens when the helium runs out? And how long does that take? So let's, let's look at a star that started out the size of our sun. It ran out of hydrogen. It had a helium flash when the core reignited. The outer layers were ejected into space to make a gorgeous planetary nebula. The inner planets are all cooked. And then what? Well, that depends on how deeply you want to look. There is a whole huge lot of nuclear physics going on in that core, with new elements being forged, although the primary reaction is called the triple alpha process. An alpha particle is two protons and two neutrons bound together, a helium-4 atom, missing all of its electrons, in other words. So, at the beginning of this reaction, you have a load of helium, and at the end of it, you have carbon, with a whole bunch of very short-lived, unstable isotopes of stuff like beryllium and lithium. The simple version is that where before we had hydrogen slowly fusing into helium at a massive scale, now we've got helium being turned into carbon at a rather faster pace. The carbon accumulates to form a new core until fusion stops and the star dies, cools, shrinks, and becomes a white-hot soup of ultra-dense helium atoms mixed with heavier elements deeper down. This, once again, is a white dwarf. But if the star was a lot heavier to start with, then there's still enough mass and pressure to keep things going long enough to build up a sizable carbon core, which, yeah, it ignites. Each new reaction is faster, produces a wider range of end elements at a high temperature, and requires ever more heat and pressure to sustain. That is, right up until you're making 
iron. So our extra massive star, way, way bigger than the sun, has been fusing hydrogen into helium, helium into carbon, and so on and so on, working its way along the periodic table until it is at a stage where it is producing iron. The iron accumulates, the fuel for this reaction starts to run out, the star begins collapsing into the iron core, and, ooh, something's different this time. You see, up until now, Every fusion reaction has produced more energy than was needed to make it happen in the first place. You have to heat and pressurize hydrogen to a certain degree to make those atoms combine, but when they do, they release more energy than you put in to get them together in the first place. But when you make iron fuse, that doesn't happen. It takes so much energy to bind two iron atoms together that you end up with an energy debt. Not only does the resulting product not come out hotter, it actually comes out colder. And that is catastrophically bad for a star. See, up until now, every time a new fusion reaction has started, it was because the core was collapsing inwards, ramping up the temperature and pressure until the core fired up again. And when it did, all that extra fire and fury would push back, stop the collapse, and eventually the star would achieve a new stable equilibrium. But now, the core has begun collapsing inwards under the force of gravity and untold gazillions of tons of material, and the fusion of iron has begun, and instead of heating up and pushing back, it's cooling down and giving way. Fusing iron makes the core collapse even faster, and when that happens, things go wrong very fast. Now, there's an important physics topic that I've ignored up until now. It's called degenerate matter, and it comes in various forms. Normal, non-degenerate matter is made up mostly of empty space. You've got your protons and neutrons all huddled up together in an atomic nucleus, and you've got a matching number of electrons swarming around in shells around the core. But from the perspective of the articles making up that atom, these electrons are miles apart. There is an absurd amount of empty space between them all, and it's only the weird quantum nature of the various atomic forces inside the atom that keep them that way. And if we zoom out, we find that the individual atoms are constantly shaking and bumping around. This part you already know, because we covered it in exhaustive depth right at the beginning of the series when we were talking about the gas laws and pressure and temperature and so on. In fact, I want to recap a bit at this point. Let's go back to looking at just some gas, which is made up of lots of molecules flying around in space, bouncing off of each other all the time. And the summed up total of all these collisions, averaged out over time, is what we feel and can measure as pressure. And we're compressing it, and as we do this, the pressure and the temperature go up, and the volume, the amount of space that it all takes up, goes down. Eventually, though, we get to a point where we've squeezed out all of the space between the atoms, and instead of bouncing around off each other like pool balls on a table, they're rubbing and jostling each other, sliding around, squeezing through each other's gaps, and we no longer have a gas, we have a liquid. And because there's no more space to take up, it is enormously harder to compress a liquid than it is a gas. It's so much harder that, for most practical purposes, we just say, you can't compress a liquid. But you can, if you've got the entire weight of a star behind you. And so you keep pressing harder and harder, and those atoms will eventually be forced to lock together into the tightest possible formation, all neatly packed like cells in a honeycomb, or the tiles on a bathroom floor. No spaces left, not even tiny little gaps. The atoms are now both arranged into a crystal lattice of some form, and they form chemical bonds holding them there. This is called a solid, and you absolutely cannot compress solids because there is nothing left to give. Well, there is. There's maybe a more compact configuration or a more efficient way to pack those atoms, but there's all that space inside the atoms. 
But now we are fighting against the much, much stronger forces that hold atoms themselves together. So it's getting quite a bit harder to press them deeper. But you can eventually make some progress. But you're eventually going to run into the Pauli exclusion principle. This principle says uh, that two particles of the same charge, spin, etc., cannot fit into the same space. It's fairly technical. There's all sorts of specific rules that apply. But the simple version for people like me is this. You can't put two things into the same place. That's intuitively obvious. It's easy to understand, and I'm happy to leave it there like that. But when you put your poor atoms into that position, well, now you've got a problem. Because no matter how much more pressure we add, the atoms can't do anything. No matter how much more you heat it up, they can't do anything. Those faithful gas laws we've been relying on all along, well, we just broke them. When you've got matter in this state, that's what we call degenerate matter. Specifically, this matter has electron degeneracy because it is the electrons that are getting in the way of anything more happening. Anyway, it's possible if you push hard enough to break even this. The electrons get forced into combining with protons to turn into neutrons, and that's actually an important part of many of the fusion reactions we've been talking about. But let's not get too technical right now. But there's another form of degeneracy, neutron degeneracy. If you can come up with an enormous enough force to squeeze a gas right down to where it becomes electron degenerate and keep pushing until those electrons turn into neutrons and keep squeezing harder and harder until there's only neutrons, well, then you hit the second wall. Neutrons also cannot take up the same space as their neighbors. You just have tightly packed neutrons with nowhere to go, and now we have neutron degeneracy. There's literally no further you can compress it. Okay, so let's... Unpause the iron fusion going on at the heart of our big store. We've run out of fuel, the core's collapsed, iron was ready to fuse, and we were hoping it would power the core up enough to push back that collapse, and instead it just turned off. The core was collapsing against its internal pressure, but suddenly the pressure is dropping. So the collapse just accelerates. You've got the entire mass of the star that's been gravitationally trying to crush inwards for millions of years, suddenly has nothing left to stop it. It falls in, compressing everything wildly until... Well, just like in our last example of my quick and inaccurate description of degeneracy, everything at the center turns into neutrons. And what happens to all that material hurtling inwards onto it? Well, it can't go down, so it bounces. Now, pardon the sidetrack, but have you ever tried to bounce two balls together? Like, you hold, say, two tennis balls together, one above the other, and then you drop them very carefully so that they hopefully fall together and hit the ground at the same time, and the bottom ball gets squashed between the ground and the top ball? I used to do stuff like this as a kid. Let me tell you, the result was not what I expected. The bottom ball bounces slightly, but the upper ball bounces back way higher than where they fell from. How is that even possible? Okay, another childhood play example. Did you ever get onto a trampoline with someone else? You know how you can time your jumps just right so that you bounce only a little bit that they get flung way up into the air? Now, I don't really have the time to explain exactly what goes on with either of these things, but it basically comes down to transferring energy from yourself to your friend, or from the bottom ball to the top ball. And if you used, say, a basketball for the bottom and a ping-pong ball at the top, well, then you better do this outside, because all that energy from the big, heavy basketball dumped into a tiny, light plastic ping-pong ball results in a very fast-moving ping-pong ball rocketing way up into the sky. And if you were to do it with, say, three balls, maybe a tennis ball in between the basketball and the ping-pong ball, well, now you're transferring even more energy up the chain into the top ball. I saw a demonstration once put together by a physics prof at a symposium I went to years ago. 
where he had seven balls with a clever little wire cage to hold them all together while they fell. And I don't think we ever found the top ball. It was just ridiculous how violently it was flung away by all the energy from all the other bouncing balls beneath it. So why am I talking about balls and trampolines? It's because when falling objects try to bounce, but there is something in the way of that bounce, the kinetic energy of the bottom object transfers to the top object. And when the objects are layers of heavy, dense, compressed gas falling down onto an absolutely 100% incompressible core of neutrons, the resulting bounce is... well... The bulk of the star simply detonates in an absurdly huge explosion, although it does take hours to happen because stars like this are really big and even the biggest explosions cannot travel faster than the speed of light. Uh, so much energy is released in this process that the star itself outshines the rest of its entire galaxy. And as those gases race outwards and dissipate, all that hot nuclear gas from the interior is suddenly exposed and it shines in X-rays, gamma rays and ultraviolet rays, adding to the energy output. In case you haven't figured it out yet, what we have is a supernova, uh, a type 2 supernova. There's another kind of supernova, and the mechanics of the explosion are pretty similar, but they involve white dwarfs being messed with by other stars. They're not the natural evolution of a very massive star, so we're not talking about type 1 supernovae today. So once the debris all clears away, all that's left is that dense core of neutrons, a neutron star, one of the weirdest objects in the universe. And now I need to apologize because I promised that the series would end here and it kind of has because our star is now dead. It has a supernova. It can't do anything more because it's now just a pile of neutrons. But you were expecting to hear about black holes. Well, if our supernova was big enough, it could have ended up as a black hole too. But to have any clue how that works, you need to know what a black hole actually is and there just isn't any more time today. So in the next episode... Uh, I will explain black holes, and we can finally put this entire old adventure to bed. But now it's time to return to the Scopex lectures, and this one, which was delivered by Dr. Peter Kortzer of the South African National Space Agency, SANSA. Uh, Peter works at the Hermanus Magnetic Observatory, and he presents a lecture on the variability of the sun, the Earth's magnetic field, and how the two interact to form space weather. <music> So space weather has got a profound influence on our own lives, our own uh, quality of life, almost every day of our life. Although we live in the shadow of a star, the sun is actually the biggest supplier of energy in our solar system. Without the sun, the Earth would not have been able to sustain life, and life would not have been able to uh, uh, evolved on this planet. So, the sun provides the energy, but let me see. Okay. When the sun sneezes, there's a great possibility that we on Earth, or the Earth planet itself, can get a cold. So, for the sun itself, we've just heard in the previous presentation, it's located in the Orion uh, uh, belt, or the uh, Orion nebula of this uh, Milky Way. It's roughly in the Middle Ages, 5 billion years old, with a 10 billion year expansion or uh, life expectancy. With roughly 200 billion stars in this Milky Way, it's located roughly 28,000 light years from the center. 
which actually a nuclear furnace. 10 to the 27 ton nuclear explosion taking place every day uh, on a regular basis to sustain its own uh, viability and not to collapse under its own uh, center of gravity. The core temperature of 10 or 15 billion degrees Kelvin. Deuterium and tritium is being fused together to form helium at the rate of 700 million tons per second. Although it's a fairly small star, almost 1.3 million Earths can actually easily fit in it. It rotates roughly around about 27 days, which we call the synodic periodicity of the sun. And at a distance of 150 million kilometers away from us, it takes eight minutes for the radiation to reach us. So every time you do sunbathing on the Sandy Bay, you just take and appreciate the fact that this, the sun that rays that actually reaches you left the sun actually eight minutes ago. There are different spot spots and features on the sun that's both important that determines uh, space weather. One is actually the uh, a solar flare. I haven't got videos loaded but due to the problems that we had, so I wanted to show you uh, at how a typical solar flare look like, but unfortunately it's not possible. These sunspots occupy vast uh, areas on the sun, sometimes 200,000 kilometers in diameter. Coronal mass ejections is a feature of space weather during solar maximum. Then we have an increased number of uh, sunspots. It's called the solar cycle, the 11-year solar cycle, and coronal holes are the features of what we see during solar minimum. So in fact, actually, it's, ah, oh, great, great, thank you very much. It actually operated, showing the uh, nuclear explosion, it's a coronal mass ejection. And then a coronal hole is actually a large area on the sun that opens up, the magnetic field opens up. It's a primary form of space weather during solar minimum and is the source of high-speed solar wind activity during solar minima. In fact, during this week, we actually had a uh, incidence of high-speed solar wind activity. And I will show that if we come that, down to that later on in the presentation. So, solar activity, sunspots activity is closely related to the existence of magnetic storms, geomagnetic storms, and they correlate closely with the uh, number of sunspots. And that is what we have our solar cycle. However, these solar cycles are not equally. They can extend over long periods of time. And actually, during the 1650 to around about 1735, we experience a very long solar minimum period. Abnormally long is called the Mondo Minimum. Interestingly enough, it also coincided with a very cold period in Europe. But due to, if we look at the tree ring record in Southern Africa, the whole Earth actually was involved or engulfed into a very cold period during that time. That made us thought, scientists starting to think that there's a close relationship between the solar activity and normal weather. However, there's still a lot of controversy involved in that. I just want to mention during that time 
of 1600 to 1700 to 50. It's also the time when Stradivarius built his very famous string instruments, his cellos, his uh, violins, and the wood that he used was hardcore rosewood that he collected during that time. So the theory goes that during that time the trees grew very slowly. The tree rings are actually very close together, close and produce the wood unprecedented in the history of time. So basically what we actually see here is that the sun had a profound influence on the growth rate of trees and also then perhaps on the quality of the Stradivarius instruments that were built during that time. Sunspots form a very interesting pattern. When the solar cycle starts, it's at the high latitudes, and as the sun's solar cycle progresses downwards, it moves down to uh, mid, uh, the uh, mid-latitudes, low-latitudes, and then disappear altogether and start all over again. That is what we call the uh, solar cycle uh, butterfly pattern. So what is actually happening at the moment with our present solar cycle that we are in? Solar cycle 23 has been completed. It actually, during that period, 2006, 7, 8, and 9, we had a very long solar minimum period with very little activity on the sun itself. The solar cycle sunspot dropped to a 100-year low. Total solar radiation dropped by 0.1%, which does not seem very much, but in terms of the radiation uh, budget that reaches the Earth, it had a profound influence on tropospheric and higher activities and the chemical composition in the atmosphere itself. Cosmic rays, they dropped to very low uh, normally repelled by the solar wind, they actually surge to extreme heights during the, the space age. These events upended the normal uh, picture of the solar minimum as actually being uneventful. But what is actually happening now at the moment, we are actually now going down uh, in solar cycle 24. So what is the problem or what is currently happening? Solar cycle 24 is declining more quickly than had ever been actually been forecasted by models. 2018, the sun has been black for almost 60% of the time, and while whole weeks are going by without any sunspot to, sunspots to be determined. So the main question remains, will solar cycle minimum be longer or even be also unusual than whatever we have experienced before. So we have to wait and see, wait the space, and we might report something very interesting later on. This video will not be running because it's... Aha! Okay, thank you very much. But I haven't got sound, so th that doesn't matter. I just... We have to move on. Uh, this is how a magnetic storm actually uh, evolves. Down here at the bottom, is how a solar cycle or a solar storm actually started on the sun. There's an activity, a coronal mass ejection. The uh, mass ejected by the uh, sun is actually sometimes equal to the total mass of the Himalaya mountains. It impacted on the uh, sun side, day side of the sun, of the Earth. It flows around the Earth's magnetic field and drops down 
through a process of reconnection, exciting the atoms, particularly oxygen and nitrogen in the atmosphere, and that is where we see our beautiful auroras in the northern and also in the southern hemisphere. Let's continue. Let's just summarize what space weather can have in store for us. All cars, ships, aeroplanes are equipped with GPS systems. We call them SUSI. Sometimes they're very angry, but they can be disrupted by space weather effects by influencing the path between the satellite and the receiver going through the ionosphere, which is disturbed during a magnetic storm. So GPS is not always correct, particularly with a very high resolution, where you require high resolution. For instance, the automatic landing systems of aeroplanes are equipped with, uh, are relying extensively on a GPS system. So that can be affected. And during a magnetic storm, it can happen that these systems do not operate perfectly and airline pilots have to switch over to manual landing procedures. Communication, it's also shortwave radio communication are vital to airlines flying particularly over the polar region and that can also be uh, adversely affected for even for days on end during a magnetic storm. Geomagnetic surveys, we all know the Chinese are looking with very round eyes towards the mineral resources of Africa nowadays. And geomagnetic surveys for finding potential new resources of minerals will become very active in the near future. So these surveys rely extensively on uh, the status of the magnetic field during a particular survey, because when the survey can, is being done during a disturbed period, you can find signals of gold where you actually actually coal was actually present. So that can be create havoc with a geomagnetic or surveys. And then power line transformers, we all have evidence of extensive damage to power lines. ESCOM is still struggling to provide us with normal power supply. And if that power line has been destroyed with a space weather event, even more uh, havoc can prevail. It can even dump or put our own civilization at risk for many years when these power lines are actually damaged beyond control. High precision agriculture, the uh, people uh, planting mealies nowadays, the, the planting of the mealy pit or the seed and the uh, fertilizer is at a critical distance from each other. So that relies on GPS systems that can also be uh, created. <coughs> unaccepted results and satellites are in a very uh, an area or a situation where they are directly hit by energetic particles from outer space and then also radiation to airlines it's common knowledge that at airline uh, altitudes your uh, radiation levels are sometimes between 40 and 70 times more than you would experience at ground level. So those people who are actually uh, actively uh, uh, searching for Voyager miles must also take into account that it comes at a price. And then I just wanted to show you the GPS uh, systems that are uh, on airlines, ships, 
and also for navigating uh, the airlines that they dial in a route on, a, for, say for instance, from Cape Town to London, and then that depends on how the GPS system actually operates. And if that uh, medium, particularly ionosphere between the airline and the receiving satellite is disturbed, it can lead to uh, a deviation in the route. And that also comes as a result of the dynamics of the ionized system between the satellite and Earth is being disturbed and can give erroneous uh, uh, readings on your G GPS system. By law in South of South Africa, I know, I don't know, I'm not aware of all the other countries, but all airlines or all pilot, uh, aircraft must be equipped with the magnetic compass. That is as a standby. It's not as accurate, but it can happen that these uh, electronic systems can be uh, struck by lightning and then you can only rely on your uh, magnetic compass as before. And shortwave radio communication is still the norm in uh, the uh, military for uh, communication. And then also over the polar region, that is a very uh, uh, popular uh, route between North America and Asia. And when you fly across this region, around about the 83 degrees, you have no communication satellites at all at your disposal. You only have the shortwave radio communication. And if that area or, uh, is disturbed through solar activity, geomagnetic storms, there's no communication possible for the airlines at all. So they have to reroute their uh, routes uh, in order to stay in contact with the uh, bases at all. And that can sometimes exceed more than 100,000 US dollars per flight. And it can have severe consequences for those airlines barely keeping head above water on their cash flow problem if they have to reroute at a cost of 100,000 dollars. Then I mentioned the, the damage to uh, Power networks, it is a result of a varying magnetic field. That is one of the laws in physics from Faraday. You have a varying magnetic field, it induces a current. And that current is quite lazy. It takes the shortest cut or a route available uh, at that moment. And what nicer route is there for a long distance power line, particularly in the Scandinavian countries, but also at mid-latitudes where we live, there's evidence that these geomagnetic-induced currents can actually damage uh, transformers beyond repair. And they have to be replaced, and that is the size of these transformers. That you, they cannot buy them off the shelf from Midas. You have to redesign them particularly for the specifics of a particular uh, power network. I wanted to show you something about the uh, Magnetic storm of October 2003. That magnetic storm actually happened during the downward phase of solar cycle 23. Completely unexpected. It created one of the, it's actually the eighth largest magnetic storm ever recorded in mankind's history. So we used satellites, the SOHO satellite. SOHO stands for Solar and Heliospheric Observatory. It's located at the L1 libration point that is 1.5 million kilometers away from the Earth 
towards the sun where the gravitational field of the sun and the earth cancels each other out. So that provides a 300 or 65 days observation of the sun. So we've progressed quite a lot since uh, Stonehenge, which was also built as a solar observatory. We nowadays we use uh, a satellite. It's much more prominent and much more convenient with data availability on a continuous basis. That is the size of the sunspot that appeared on 29th of October. That is the size of the Earth that we can see. What actually made it even more uh, dangerous, it was in a geo-effective position. That means it was directly in line with the orbit of the Earth. So it was actually like a shotgun aimed in line of the Earth. That is what we could see from the Lasco uh, Soho Observatory. That is a, a coronagraph, that is the size of the sun, and the disc, disc in front of the CCD camera actually blocks off the bright spark part of the solar surface, and we can only see how the solar corona actually uh, behaved during that particular period. Here we see it's the 26th of October, massive activity, and then all of a sudden here, around about 28, 2030, that was when the energetic particles actually blinded the CCD camera of the uh, uh, coronagraph on board of the SOHO satellite. So that meant these particles were directed directly towards the uh, Earth's magnetic field and what happened then we were just at the mercy of the uh, solar magnetic storm. That is a result of a transformer damage at uh, Ruakana. That is another one that got uh, its best life behind itself. That was in, near Lesotho. Uh, that is the index or the activity index for space weather as we recorded it uh, on a planetary basis. So what happened during that particular storm? The ionosphere was so disturbed that the vertical error for the automatic landing uh, technology on the aircraft was actually more than 50 meters. So that is what I said. You had to use, or the pilots had to use manual landing procedures. Polar airlines had to be diverted to lower latitudes uh, and not even to speak about the human exposure to increased uh, solar radiation. Even here in Southern Africa, we didn't uh, escape the effects of the uh, solar uh, activity or the magnetic storm. That is the uh, radiation alert issued by the Federal Aviation Authorities in America on October 28, uh, uh, 2003, indicating that pilots or airlines had to fly at lower levels in order to avoid the unexpected high levels of, and even Southern Africa did not escape that effect at all. So what do we do here in Southern Africa? Here at Amanus we have what we call a space weather warning center. We are part of 17 regional warning centers uh, located worldwide, forming part of the International Space Environment Services. And we, at the tip, southern tip of Africa, is the sole provider of space weather information for the whole of the African continents. That in, uh, information regarding communications, navigation, and other effects such as uh, 
geomagnetically induced currents. And that is just a scale to show you the different levels of disturbance in the Earth's magnetic field as a result of certain magnetic storms. Here at the G1 level, that is the lowest level, we can see that even migratory animals are adversely affected. And in the United States of America, pigeon flying is a highly uh, lucrative uh, industry. And these people fly pigeons that cost even more than $100,000. So if they lose these uh, pigeons, it's a quite a severe uh, impact on the uh, financial situation. So that means even with a less than 1% disturbance in the magnetic field of the Earth, it can have an impact on uh, migratory animals. Then we go to higher levels, that is the top level, that is the uh, Halloween 2003 storm, is in that category, that's roughly around about 2% disturbance in the total field of the magnetic field of the Earth. GPS can be degraded for days, HF radio completely impossible, and so we can actually uh, continue just illustrating how prone and how vulnerable our electronic and high technology systems are actually to uh, impact and effects that actually start at 150 million kilometers away from us. I just want to show some of the uh, cost implications, $30 million in direct costs for the March 1989 uh, magnetic storm. Satellites were damaged beyond repair and then uh, Polar, Polar Airlines, we know, had to dig up very deep into their pockets in order to prevent a loss of communication and also unnecessary uh, or unwanted exposure for, from radiation. So, what is the latest status? This week, uh, we observed, as I said, a complete blank sun with no sunspot activity. However, there was a coronal hole on the surface of the sun. It was a source of high-speed solar wind, roughly 560 kilometers per second, proton density, nine protons, is quite fairly high. And without even any uh, activity like coronal mass ejection, we recorded a G1 magnetic storm. That was the uh, aurora observed at Tromso in Norway, and that was uh, you know, simultaneously in Queensland, New Zealand, we could also see the aurora australis, and that is how the magnetic field behaved at Havanas due to the impact of this high-speed solar wind uh, on our environment. So nobody can escape the effects of a magnetic storm. It's not a high-pressure or a low-pressure system that will affect only localized regionals. The whole of the Earth is a uh, victim of what happens on the sun, and that's my dear friends, thank you very much, in spite of all the problems. Uh, thank you very much, Peter. Much appreciated. And well, I do apologize for the delay, but we've sort of managed to get well, through most of it, I think. Good morning, Are there any questions? Uh, yes. The equator of the rotation of the sun, is yes. that oblique to the ecliptic? No, not really. Uh, it is. It varies according to the orientation of the Earth itself. It's not. It varies with the season. 
So it's not always the same in the Euclidean, uh, but not very much. It's a few degrees. So it's actually the more. Are you excited for the Parker Solar Probe? To oh, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. My, uh, it's on my to-do list. And the Parker Solar Probe will provide us with information unprecedented in the history of mankind. And we hope to observe stuff that we could only be dreamed of uh, in the past. And now it will be possible to study in detail how the sun actually behaves and look into coronal holes and these coronal mass ejections of the physics behind the solar wind and the physics of the uh, space weather itself. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Peter. Thank you very much. And that was the third of our Scopex Talks. If you liked what you heard, you should really think about subscribing in iTunes or Apple Podcasts, they're calling it now, or on Google Podcasts or in whatever app you use to fetch your, your podcast, uh, just to guarantee that you will catch the next episode without having to hope you uh, catch the announcements on social media. Just head on over to urban-astronomer.com and find the podcast subscribe button that best suits how you listen to podcasts. Now, if you're up for it, and if you have a minute or two to spare and you'd like to help grow the show, you can also leave a rating and a review. Or even better, share the subscribe link with your friends and family. And if you'd like to help cover costs, well, all you need to do is click the Patreon link, again, on the urban-astronomer.com website, and pledge a few dollars. Now, next episode, we'll be playing the fourth of the Scopex recordings by Clyde Foster, director of the Shallow Sky section of the Astronomical Society of South Africa. Clyde is an excellent planetary photographer and he is globally recognized for his scientifically valuable images of weather events on Mars and Jupiter, which he captures from his suburban backyard observatory. But until then, thanks for listening and clear skies. <laughs>